This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today, we're talking with Randy Ryland a veteran traditional journalist who has made the transition to digital and multimedia storytelling. Randy is the president of Ryland Digital, and in his past, he also spent time leading a major company, Discovery Communications, into the digital era. Randy, it is great to talk with you today. We have been having conversations about careers for so many years. I knew you when you were uh, a young journalism student. Is I think maybe you were a sophomore in college. Is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. That's uh, like two centuries ago, I think. It was a long time ago, and a, a long time ago in the world of journalism. Right, right. My recollection of way back then is that in those days, uh, you were going to, you saw yourself as a, a newspaper journalist, you were very committed. You started that way. You were good at it. But something happened along the way. Can you kind of share with us the the uh, course of your career after you left uh, being a leader at the student newspaper at Ohio University and heading off to Pittsburgh? How did things unfold for you? Well, um, as you know, that was uh, when I left college in 73. That was uh, when Watergate was in in full steam and, you know, it was kind of a, a quite a, a glorious thing to be a journalist back then, a print journalist. And that's always what I wanted to do. But I, I was in print journalism for, I don't know, maybe five or six years with daily newspapers in Pittsburgh and Baltimore. And, and I think that uh, I was really, I realized I was more drawn to magazines um, in part because I'd like to write with a little more depth, and and I'd like to get into subject matter more deeply than most newspaper stories allowed you to. Um, and I, I was in that for, in magazines for, in Pittsburgh and in Washington for, I don't know, another 17, 18 years, and then I made the big switch to digital media in 1995, and uh, as, I, as I concede, it was pretty much... Uh, serendipitous. Um, I had been writing for a magazine that at that time the Discovery Channel published and the editor of the magazine told me that they were going to start something called a website, uh, which I didn't know what that was. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and you know, I, I, but I thought, well, uh, <laughs> the depth of my thinking was more along the lines of, hmm, that sounds interesting. Uh, I, I really didn't know that much about it, but I thought I'd, I'd plunge into that. And uh, as you know, that was in the very early days of, uh, of that kind of media, digital media. And it was a real uh, tremendous learning experience for me. Um, in a very basic way, one of the, uh, the, the key lessons I learned, the profound lessons I learned, is that storytelling doesn't have to be linear, Um, that there are, you know, on the web, it's more about impulse and it's more about mixing media. And that was all new to me. In a way, um, 
storytelling is sort of something you've always done. As as somebody who's who's known you for a long time, I can think back um, to times when you've been giving talks, or you did stand up for a while. You have always been interested in storytelling and sort of integrated into your life. And it's almost, it looks to me from a, that storytelling kind of pushed you in to journalism rather than journalism pushing you into storytelling. Is that, is that possible? I, I think that's, I think that's true. Um, and I've, I've always enjoyed listening to stories and, um, uh, but you know, as I as I mentioned, switching to digital media was just such a shift, and um, because you had to think in a very different way. But you know, I finally came to the realization: well, this is this is just another form of storytelling. You know, um, let's just use what it allows you to do, and and learn how to do that well, and and uh, adapt your skills to this technology. And, and see how, uh, rather than saying, well, I can't do this because I don't know technology. It was, I mean? it was difficult at one time to be projecting how stories would be delivered because we, most of us, couldn't really imagine the technology. I remember you telling me one time when I was proud of my brand new little tiny flip top phone that one day we would be reading the news on the phone. And I looked down at the screen I could barely see. And, and I, I just couldn't believe what you were saying. But you couldn't tell me what a phone looked like. But you were still kind of in the world where they were grappling with um, what could be the technology and what could we do with it. Both of those things were in play at the same time. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think a lot of times... Um, you know, as we've talked about before, that the technology often gets ahead of um, uh, the, the social aspects of a device or the legal or ethical aspects. Uh, that's not part of the, the initial conversation. It's, it's focused on what is doable as opposed to what maybe should we do or shouldn't we do. And, you know, I think that the thing that often happens is... Um, You'll, you'll devise, engineers will devise this capability, and then it becomes a matter of uh, users to help shape how that's adapted. Um, and, and that's something that I think a lot of people, I had the luxury of learning that in the early days of digital media when a lot of times uh, people who would design apps would uh, put it out on the web with the, the, uh, the goal of having people come up with new ideas of how to use it. So the idea was, this isn't fully baked. You're going to help us bake it. And, and that, you know, I think once you understand that, technology is not so intimidating. I think the problem comes when people look at it and say, well, this is, these are the rules, and I don't know those rules, and I can't do that, so therefore I'm staying away from that. Well, during those kind of early days, you were an editor. So you had uh, young reporters Right. And as an editor, you're always teaching young reporters about what journalism was like. Did you find it um, a challenge to um, be teaching the, the the principles of journalism and accuracy and all those things that are maybe easier on a page uh, than when you're using multimedia? Is it is it a different kind of journalism that evolved, or are the principles still pretty much what you have to keep hammering? Well, I, I think you, you don't want to lose sight of the principles. And, um, 
you know, it, it's important for people to first understand that the truth and facts are the most important thing. But I think one of the one of the complicating factors is there's so much emphasis on speed now, and and that just by definition detracts from your ability to be as precise or as accurate. And I think that's the that's the tension that makes it much more difficult for young journalists now. Um, and also the expectation that uh, as a young journalist now, you understand how to create video and, and record sound and do all those sort of things because there are elements of that. Plus, you're expected to be engaged on social media with the audience all the time. Back in my days as a reporter, you know, I'd write the story, it would go through the copy desk, and I'd be done with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, and and now you're pretty much expected to be available or responsive around the clock, and that's very demanding. With young reporters, the idea of social media is something they were born with. They may call themselves digital natives, but everybody else is having to to learn all kinds of things if they're part of the world, even if they don't think of themselves as digital natives. I, I've noticed lately you've been writing in your innovations column for smithsonian.com a lot about how um, understanding tech and, and digital media is now a, a critical part of smart and healthy aging, that you, you've been writing about how some technologies are going to have more payoff for older people than for anybody else. Is, is that about right? And can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been talking to uh, uh, people who have been doing research with aging, on aging and technology and applying technology to the aging process. So people will be able to stay in their homes longer. Uh, that's really in, the intent. And, you know, as, as one of them told me, um, technology Probably uh, the people who can most benefit from technology are aging people, but the paradox is they're the ones who are least likely to adopt it. Um, but I, I just see uh, example after example of cases where of technology that will make uh, not only just living in your home easier, but extending your careers. Um, I, I just think, you know, I think they, the uh, uh, conventional wisdom is technology makes people lose their jobs. Uh, uh, it ends their jobs. But I really think in a lot of ways it can extend your jobs. Uh, it extends your career. And it may take you in a somewhat different direction. But there's no longer really uh, concerns about uh, maybe you're, uh, uh, you have less mobility. Well, that's, mm -hmm. not a big, that's not a big problem, really, if, you're, if you can work from home or you do things from home. Um, uh, and, and there are just so many other things you can do. You have access to information in a way that you wouldn't have had before. Um, a lot of it is is being able to recalibrate the skills that you have and you've, you've developed through your career to this world so that you can say, well, how can I use the technology to sharpen those skills or how do I adapt those skills to the technology rather than saying, I don't need to, I, I, I can't use those skills anymore. I, I think that's a mistake that people make a lot of times uh, in terms of aging. I mm -hmm. mean, certainly with uh, with healthcare, that is going to be uh, uh, artificial intelligence and and the use of sensors and and uh, uh, remote uh, healthcare. 
that is going to be so much a part of the future. Okay, let's um, slow, slow that down a little bit. Sure, sure. Um, artificial intelligence is like yes. a huge um, topic. Can, can you give us a quick de a definition of artificial intelligence? Yeah, um, to put it uh, fairly simply, it's the idea of creating machines that think. And what that means is they think and they learn. Um, learning is probably a better way of putting it. But basically, uh, you give these machines a lot of tons of data. And from that data, they start to learn. They make assumptions. They develop a memory. And to give you an example, you know, one of the uh, classic stories was, I think it was in 2012, Google did this project where they had this super powerful uh, computer. Actually, it was, I think it was a total of 16,000 computers that they married together in this project. And the idea was they showed it millions of photos of cats. And, and we, but they didn't explain any, anything about why they were doing this or what a cat was or the name for this thing. And through that, the machine was able to learn, was able to identify the, the, the qualities of a cat and could identify cats just by looking at it. Identif it could look at a, a, uh, some aspect of a cat's face and identify it as a cat. And that's a form of memory that it developed. So that's, you know, that's a, a, a kind of an extreme example, but it's a matter of developing memory based on, um, on what it learns and interacting with a person. And, and with the goal of making machines able to make deci decisions on their own as opposed to simply um, being programmed to do a certain thing. Okay. So, okay, so an older person alone yes. in their home, you mentioned sensors. Would there be yep. some kind of sensor? So the, um, the artificial intelligence mechanism can learn about that person's health? or Yes, yes. There's actually a... Uh, a researcher out at Washington State who's been working with this for a while, um, and and essentially, um, she's had sensors in people's older people's homes for a while. And what it can do is develop um, algorithms based on how people move around their homes and the sort of things they do. Now she has made the point of not installing microphones or cameras, which is what they usually do. Instead, it's all based on gathering data on people's behavior and activities so they can get some sense that over the course of time a person spends as much time in a room um, that this is what they usually do there or they're usually out of their bed by this time but if they're not maybe there's something amiss here there's also sensors that um, that can take care of basic things like determining uh, is the stove on or is the water running um, uh, and and so the idea is it it really is something that can watch over a person um, and and not in a creepy way necessarily, but just uh, have a raised awareness of what's going on there, and also be able to help a caregiver determine uh, or maybe a family member uh, provide information to them to say, well, here's what they've been doing lately, just so you know that. So. It, it sounds like you're describing two kind of things. One is the maybe falls under the heading of smart home that warns yeah, us right. if the stove's on or the water's right. dripping in the basement, those kind of things. And maybe they go to a family member or even a maintenance person. Right. But 
but then there are other things that have to do with a person's health. Maybe they're not walking at all, or something, right. and and that might could that connect directly with a health giver who somebody who can't afford a full time help could have some a virtual help giver. Right, and and they have there are sensors now that can. Uh, determine if there's a change in your gait or the way you move. Um, and based on that, it, it's it's not that they're doing diagnosis, but again, it's kind of an early warning system. And and it, it's not, this isn't necessarily, what I'm going to describe next isn't uh, really possible yet, but it's pretty close where uh, if you have a device that you communicate with, say an Alexa, uh, if you take the next generation of Alexa, it converses with you. Um, uh, and through those conversations, it it can uh, determine if maybe you, you're having some cognitive decline um, based on how you interact, the sort of things you say, memory loss, those kinds of things. And again, it's not diagnosis, but it's a way of saying, huh, there's a change here and becoming aware of that change. And that's that gets back to that learning and memory again, based on what it memory, what memories it has of its interactions with you, it can determine there are changes and what those changes might mean. And is part of this process resulting in you learning almost a relationship with that device? Um, that's a very good question. Um, and it's, it's one of the ones that uh, uh, on a the- uh, theoretical level, it gets discussed a lot. It becomes a matter of, okay, say you're communicating with this machine and, and uh, uh, it's meant to be helpful, but what if you're interacting with the machine a lot and as a result of that, you actually become more socially isolated, which is really the, the biggest problem with a lot of older adults. They stay inside their home. They don't communicate with people. And, and with some of the researchers I've talked to, they said we have to be careful where we go with this. We don't want it so that this becomes such a companion that it becomes what you're interacting with and you don't have human interaction. So that's a little far out there, but it is something that they're more concerned about. So it becomes a question of we're creating machines you're building a relationship with, but what is that relationship and how would it be different from human relationship? If you had um, an a very elderly relative right now who lived alone and we're planning for that person, where would you start now? What's kind of available out there now that that would grab your attention? Um, I mean, I think, well, there are something like Alexa um, the, that Amazon has done, the Amazon Echo. We have an Alexa. And, you know, I've heard about, um, this isn't, elderly people so much, but older people who will use it to play music, you know, um, and do a soundtrack because they're not making mixtapes, you know, they're, they just want, they like Frank Sinatra, so they'll say play Frank Sinatra. But the other good thing about um, voice recognition, the quality of voice recognition that you have now is uh, one of the hurdles for a lot of older people when it comes to technology is you know, they just weren't very facile at, at using apps or, you know, typing on a phone or doing those sort of things. And with this quality of voice recognition, you really go beyond that. You don't need to worry about that anymore. It's just communicating. And and I think 
that is a starting point. Um, there's a there's also a, a robot that I wrote about recently, where um, it can uh, you set certain goals that you have, and it may be, for instance, that uh, I want to make sure that I take a walk every day, and it will remind you if you haven't taken a walk yet. So it's kind of like a uh, aging coach <laughs> in a way. Uh -huh. it, it's it's a someone or or something there that's meant to help you. But you define what your goals are. It's not like it's some martinet saying, yes, you must do this now. You say, this is what I want you to do. You define the parameters of your interaction with it. And from that, it works with you. So, um, and, and then just in, you know, uh, also responding to your question, I think that uh, I, I'd look at a lot of things that can be done with sensors because, again, you can, um, as you know, with really older people, uh, falls are a big problem. And it's one way you can find out right away if someone has fallen and how severely they're hurt. And, and that's just, uh, I mean, we all hear these stories of someone who fell and they were on the ground for a day and a half. Um, uh, you know, so, but I think that there's, there's just so many opportunities that are coming that will uh, make it easier to live alone. We'll be back with more after this. In a world where impact matters, the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University offers innovative solutions to challenges. It's ranked as the 39th most innovative public service school in the nation, and it's in the top 100 U.S. News and World Report Best Public Affairs Grad Schools. The Voinovich School is a catalyst for regional, state, and national impact in entrepreneurship, energy, and the environment. With 11 full-time faculty members and 60 professional staffers, the Voinovich School partners with nonprofit organizations, governments, and the private sector to solve problems. It's the home of the master's programs in public administration and environmental studies. Students engage in real-world learning and networking to bring their ideas to life. For more information, visit ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. Well, you know, Randy, I'm always looking at big trends and figuring out um, what are the implications for career patterns, because that's something I'm so interested in. So... Looking at the these trends, these digital trends we're talking about, it feels like they're two big categories, and we've we've focused on one. It's it's one is how by being hip to digital developments, you can transform your career no matter what age you are in. And I think you're an example. You're uh, you're a cutting edge journalist these days because you understand and you have the skill set, so you can. One reason these things are so important in, in terms of career is it's, it's part of how you not only stay in the game, but signal that you're staying in the game. But I'm wondering, I'm kind of asking, I hadn't um, thought so much about AI and you know all these developments. Are there going to be whole new careers that develop for people to 
provide caregiving or otherwise use these new technologies to help older people and all kinds of people? Do, do you see new career trends developing using yeah, some of these things? I, I, no, I, I think that definitely will be the case. I mean, I don't know what they might be, but I, I think the understanding is that um, uh, machines and, and robots will become so proficient at doing tasks and, and taking care of things um, uh, that, that we would see as, you know, maybe mundane jobs. Um, and the I, and this is, again, theoretical, but the idea is it will open up opportunities for people to be more creative, um, uh, to think about uh, creating different types of jobs or different types of careers. And, you know, one, one thing that uh, uh, there's a professor at Harvard, I think his name is uh, Lawrence Katz, he wrote about something called the artists and economy. And, and basically, one of the things he said is that instead of automatically assuming that someone, let's say in coal mining country, needs to retrain and learn how to write computer code, and that's the key for them to have a career, he said there, there, there could be more opportunities where people could apply the skills that they've had, say they're a carpenter, or they can create something uh, that can be sold on Etsy, which is the the website, you know, where people put up vintage clothing and jewelry and those sort of things. But it just provides opportunities to take skills and 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 make them uh, and, and personalize your career in a lot of ways. Now, one part of that uh, that a lot of people aren't comfortable with is the whole idea of developing a personal brand. And uh, I, I think the younger generation is is they're they're completely comfortable with it. But with uh, older people, uh, it's a big leap. And and that whole need to make people aware of what you can do and and what how they can benefit from working with you, it takes, uh, you know, you have to lose that, uh, any Midwestern humility you might uh -huh. have. <laughs> you just have to go out and, 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 and then, you know, that gets back to your original point about the technology. Technology is a big part of that. You have to find different ways to reach out and and present yourself in different ways on different platforms. So uh, you may talk about something in a different way on Facebook than you do on Twitter. Um, and, and then you have to wrestle with, well, how do I use my skills or promote myself on Instagram? I don't know. Maybe there's a way. Maybe there's not. Um, but I think... You always have to be aware of these new platforms to see how can I plug into that. And that doesn't mean you have to plug into every one, but just explore these things. Because that's going to be, as you as you know from your own experience, it's just really important to uh, keep promoting yourself in a way, and it's not in a boastful way, but it's exposure. It's just so, making people aware. Yeah, and so what we're talking about then, um, say, you mentioned, I think, a, a carpenter. So we have this carpenter who has come up with a very beautiful kind of table. And the carpenter doesn't have to tell um, her life story. She has right. to show the table and kind of think of the table as a product and maybe distance it for herself so she's more comfortable with it. Right. Um, and then she has to figure out, uh, how do I connect to the marketplace? And, and that is a process that we can all learn, but it requires something, and that's connectivity. Right. That is, all these, many of the things we're talking about require that you be connected to, to
to something else by Wi-Fi or cell phone or whatever. And I, I, I know you um, recently won a first prize award of some kind for a, a great piece you did in Rappahannock, Virginia, a series of pieces on the problem of lack of cell and, and broadband in Rappahannock County and rural areas. Does this mean that the world is changing, but rural areas are going to be left out? What What's the situation there? Yeah. Um, I mean, it really is. People are starting to pay more attention to it, but uh, for economic reasons, the big, uh, certainly the big broadband providers, uh, and even with cell phone companies, uh, it doesn't pay for them to invest in a lot of infrastructure out in rural areas. So what's happened is you have these big gaps um, and, and the reality is people in rural areas can, they, they need broadband in some ways more than people in urban areas do um, uh, because they are remote, because they do need, uh, they can take advantage of remote health care. Uh, uh, there, there are so many ways that they can use it, but um, it's, it's just really, uh, it, it's difficult to make it happen because it's a big infrastructure issue. Now, what is what is happening is that uh, there's more acknowledgement that broadband uh, internet service is really uh, a utility, just like you know electrical mm-hmm. service. It's taken a while for that to happen, but it is happening. Um, but I, I just think that um, uh, there, if if you don't have broadband in rural areas, they will fall farther and farther behind. And uh, just think of all the things you have to do online. You know. You pay taxes. Uh, when I worked on that story, uh, uh, most people, when you want to do a job application, you have to go online. You go into the store and they'll say, well, you can't fill it out here. You have to go online. Well, if you can't get online, <laughs> it makes yeah. it harder to get a job, you know? So um, it, it, it's just a, it's a reality. And, and unfortunately, um, and you see this, you know, it's well beyond Rappahannock and a lot of rural areas. Uh, there is a real problem with this and a lot of places are wrestling well, it's a huge um, problem, not unlike electrification way back in the right. 30s, where it, right. something has to be done to, to not have a, a great divide, um, right. particularly for kids. Right. They have to have it as part of their education. Yeah, and that, that's something that I didn't mention. As you know, out in Rappahannock, a lot of times uh, the kids will park in the, the parking lot of the county library to take advantage of their Wi-Fi. Because um, they don't have broadband at home, uh, and that, you know that's just crazy. I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. But I mean, that's that's the sort of thing that's uh, uh, that you're seeing in a lot of places. Well, there's lots to grapple with, and and I I love your enthusiasm. I think you're an example of somebody who has reinvented a career to be right at the you know the front of the parade in in, in terms of futurism. I'll I'll mention again that. Um, more of your exploration of artificial intelligence and all kinds of wonderful, interesting, maybe scary technologies show up in your innovations column at smithsonian.com. Um, it's always interesting to see what you have to write about. I, I wonder if um, um, you want to share any comments on, on what the best parts of your career have been and any advice for people on how to have a career that keeps getting reinvented? Well, you know, it, it's certainly a cliche, but people say determine what your passion is and, and 
try not to ever lose sight of that. It may have to shift in some ways. And I, you know, I've come to the realization that uh, for me, it's a combination of storytelling and and uh, continual learning. And the, the beauty of doing the innovations uh, blog for Smithsonian is I'm talking to researchers all the time. Um, uh, I just talked to uh, two scientists in Israel the other day about uh, their coming up with a way to detect buried uh, landmines using uh, uh, genetic engineering of, of microbes, of E. coli microbes mm -hmm. and lasers. And, you know, I mean, that's the sort of thing where I, I, kinda, I don't know, I know nothing about that <laughs> when I start the interview. And you plunge and, in. Yeah, and, and you know, you kind of, uh, but I love learning about those things. And then I love sharing what I've learned. And, and I think the... Uh, the, the value for me is when you're talking to scientists in particular, um, the challenge is you have to clearly understand what they're saying and what they're doing because then you have to relay that to a, the general public. And, and that's always a challenge, but it's a challenge that I enjoy a lot. So even though um, so much has changed during the course of my career, I've still found a way to continue to do the things that I really really enjoy. Um, and sometimes people worry too much about, well, tech, technology has taken away my options. Um, and I know that's an easy conclusion to come to, but I just think more often it it gives you more opportunities and, and it allows you to um, maybe go in directions you wouldn't have imagined, uh, certainly get exposure that you wouldn't have received before. Well, you're certainly an example of somebody who is, seems to be having a wonderful time exploring all the new options. Randy, thank you so much for joining me today. It's, it's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Today we've been talking with veteran journalist and multimedia storyteller Randy Ryland about his transition into the digital age. Today's career tip is that Regardless of your age or profession, it's always smart to keep tweaking your digital skills. Being media savvy helps you show the world that you're up to date and at the top of your game. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO.